Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, my conversation with the founder of The Points Guy, Brian Kelly, on his latest rankings of the airlines during the COVID-19 crisis. So who's doing a good job under the circumstances? Who's failing? Some interesting results. And speaking of airlines, my chat with the CEO of Frontier, Barry Biffle, on how the low-cost, low-fare carrier is coping, talking about everything from passenger temperature checks at the gates to the dreaded middle seat. And last but not least, I check in with economist editor Charles Reed to discuss his heads-up essay on what travel might actually look like in 2022. First up, Brian Kelly. He's the founder of The Points Guy, Brian Kelly. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me, Peter. You got it. I mean, I don't even know where to begin because every time you think you're on top of something in, in what's going on in the world of travel right now, the, the, either the rules change or the news change or both. In the last week, we've seen a number of, of airlines nationalized. We've seen a number of airlines basically stop service. We've seen a number of airlines file bankruptcy or both, the most recent being Virgin Atlantic. You just came out with a survey of which airlines perform best during COVID-19. What surprises in that survey for you? You know, there were there weren't a whole lot of surprises because there, there definitely has been two packs of airlines, at least in the U.S. when it comes to COVID um, in terms of passenger safety, you know, blocking middle seats and cleaning and then also being being a uh, passenger friendly when it comes to refunds. Um, yeah, you know, there's that's no a, that's the big bad one. That's the that, big bad one. And, you know, in the survey, really, you know, the, the two premier U.S. airlines, in my opinion, are, are Delta and Southwest, and both of them fared very well. Delta took the overall in our uh, survey that we, we looked at a bunch of different factors, uh, including cleanliness and how often they clean the planes and how transparent they've been during the crisis. So Delta won overall, but, um, you know, several other airlines really scored well. Southwest for being the most flexible, you know, even pre-COVID, they allowed, you know, they allow you to change your flight for free yeah, uh, yeah. and give free bags, which is, um, you know, in this day and age of getting dinged for every fee on a plane, that's still really rich. And we like to remind consumers that uh, whether crisis or not, Southwest is a very passenger-friendly airline. Um, but also, you know, JetBlue and Alaska Airlines also fared really well. Uh, the airline said not so well. Spirit at the bottom of the pack, which wasn't really a surprise considering they uh, they nickel and dime uh, during the best of times. Uh, but, uh, you know, United and American were, were also towards the bottom because they've been frankly been selling planes full, even though they kind of alluded to the fact that they wouldn't or they would try not to. But uh, so, yeah, there definitely is a a big uh, gap this year in, in from the best to the worst. I, I can tell you, Brian, that the volume of the emails and correspondence that we're getting uh, in terms of complaints uh, were almost all about two areas. One we just talked about, refunds, and the other about travel insurance. But sticking on the refund part, uh, the biggest offender was United Airlines. Uh, 
at least in terms of the volume of our emails. And, and it was an interesting kind of an arc of behavior that happened from the beginning of the pandemic until just recently. United initially never even volunteered to their customers that they were eligible for a refund and would only offer them a voucher. Then they changed by saying, okay, we're going to give you a voucher, but we'll extend the validity. Then when they got basically slapped by the U.S. Department of Transportation, they then said, okay, we'll give you a refund if we're unable to rebook you within six hours of your originally scheduled departure time. And that didn't fly, every pun intended. And then they changed it to say, okay, we'll, we'll give you the refund if we're not able to rebook you within two hours. But, of course, the argument still stays the same, and that is, once they cancel your flight, even if they rebook you to another flight, that still means they cancel. And under the USDOT rule, you're entitled to a full refund. So they're, you know, they're still playing with the rules. Oh, yeah. I mean, Peter, we've got United experts at the point sky and they couldn't keep up with it. So, you know, God help the average consumer trying to make sense of it. Um, so, yeah, they, they were heavily dinged for that uh, misbehavior, in our opinion. And I think it's extra you know, I get that this is an unprecedented time. The airlines, you know, are struggling to pay their employees. But, you know, you take billions from U.S. taxpayers, you should, you know, uh, put at least think about the passenger and the passenger experience and, and giving passengers back their money for a product that you're not going to give them. So, you know, they they have since kind of uh, uh, cleaned up their act from a consumer experience perspective. But, you know, United also got dinged because, you know, in the frequent flyer program, most of the airlines have really relaxed the rules anytime you need to change, you know, making it easier to redeem miles. But for some reason, United during this time also came out with a change in how you redeem for partner airlines and increasing the price, which kind of is counterintuitive when demand is down so much. You generally don't want to create rules that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, make consumers not want to redeem their miles either. So, well, you uh, know what? It's, it's, it's more than just counterintuitive. It's like basic common sense mm-hmm. that. There's amazing amount of capacity right now. Uh, and I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen, um, the eligibility awards in terms of the, the eligible miles and many routes coming down for redeeming frequent flyer awards. I've seen, you know, business class seats from London to New York, which used to be 120,000 miles, now going for 60. So yeah. to, to change the rules to increase it, you're right. It, it makes no sense at all. To put things in perspective in terms of how much money we're talking about here, uh, when, you know, when the problem was at its height, Delta Airlines and United were hemorrhaging, this is unprecedented, $100 million a day. And, I mean, how do you sustain that? Uh, and of that $100 million at Delta, $30 million of that was Delta writing refund checks back to passengers. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, to put things in perspective even more, in their second quarter earnings, Delta boasted that they, they'd gotten better. They're only hemorrhaging. Twenty-seven million dollars a day. Only. So we're we're not we're not over this yet. Absolutely not. Yeah, the biggest factor is business travel, right? So leisure travelers, I I forget the last time we talked. I think you know travel was really depressed. Uh, You know, we used to be at two and a half million TSA passengers a day screened. We just last Thursday hit just under eight hundred thousand. So you know, still dramatically down, but ten x what we were in April at eighty thousand. So leisure travel is going to come back. but, you know, international and international business travel, which, you know, really rakes in the profits for the airlines, that is, you know, there's no there's no coming back in sight for that. It, it will be years. So the airlines are really going to have to rethink their strategy um, and how they make money uh, without the bulk of, you know, those premium business class passengers. Yeah. In fact, the, the International Air Transport Association estimates that business travel may, emphasis on the word may, get back to pre-pandemic levels by 2024. That's yeah. how crazy it is. But, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing, and that's the second item up for bits here on The prices Right with you today, one of the things that I'm seeing is that, you know, people want their guarantee. Businesses want a guarantee before they'll let their executives travel. The executives want a guarantee. Countries want a guarantee before they'll let you in. And one of the pivot points, because it was also one of the highest points of complaints, is insurance. You know, people want to know that if they're buying travel insurance, it's not worthless. And I think you would agree that prior to the pandemic, even with the best of intentions, you know, people were buying travel insurance without realizing that it was essentially worthless. Oh, yeah. You know, travel and, you know, pandemics are pretty much excluded from every policy except, you know, the super expensive cancel for any reason policies. I I think it's really that brings up a great point. And I think Emirates just last week announced that. 
they're going to be giving a COVID insurance of sorts. If you, if you contract COVID, um, after flying them, even if it's not, you know, you don't contract it on the plane because we can't tell where you get it, but they'll actually cover a lot of the costs and medical costs in order, in order to shore up that confidence since people do have no confidence in insurance policies. But there's also the ethical. How can you force someone to go on a business trip? Even a domestic one in the U.S., you know, in New York State, there's over 30 states where you need to quarantine for two weeks upon arrival. How can you tell your employee you have to go on this trip? And also, by the way, you can't visit family out of state for two weeks after the trip because you right. have to comply with local laws. Exactly. Um, you know, so it's there's so many different roadblocks. We are, you know, that's why this this crisis is multiple crises like public health, but also financial and uh you know, luckily, the economy shows signs of a turn turnaround. But even that, uh, there's still so many question marks. Well, you would think if we go back to the traditional principle that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, that some insurance company with even perhaps a higher premium would reevaluate their policy language and cover this. People mm -hmm. want a security blanket. I mean, I'd buy it. Totally. I mean, Peter, you just just this week, you know, the, there was a Norwegian cruise line, the first one to, to go out of yeah. uh, no, Tromso. And, you know, yeah. these people paid for a seven day premium of the fjords in Norway. And, you know, two days in, there was the outbreak and they, they missed half their their journey. So, you know, not not getting your money back, you, you, then you have to quarantine in Norway. And there's all these unknowns that the travel industry is going to have to figure out ways working with travel insurance companies to shore up confidence. Because, you know, I don't recommend to the average person to you can travel internationally, uh, but it's there's so many hoops to jump through and so many unknowns that it's it's uh it's really not worth it for the average person to travel internationally. But, you know, in the absence of, of, a, of a vaccine that's scalable, in the absence of widespread testing or therapeutics, that's the other unknown, you know, that's keeping people from traveling. And again, there's no guarantee. You know, when, when you think about what they're doing now with, with the COVID-19 protocol saying you have to test negative before you'll let you go. Well, there are a lot of tests where you take them, you don't get the results for seven or eight days or even longer. What happens in the middle? In the meantime, if you contract the disease. So there's still no, no guarantee, even with, given the current testing protocols that are going to make people confident enough or yeah. countries secure enough to want to let you show up. Yeah, we saw that with the Bahamas where they allowed past, you know, they, they opened up and then closed within a week. You know, we were just talking about the Caribbean. We were talking about a, a, a region of the world in which the entire GDP is travel and tourism related. These are tourism driven economies. Uh, they went from, you know, 30 million visitors in the region to zero almost overnight. Um, and you can draw the, you know, it's not too difficult to draw the lines between no revenue, no airlift and no food on the table. So it was in their best interest, at least conceptually, to reopen as soon as possible. And then we had the Bahamas issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's sad because, you know, the, the issue then, too, is that the, the healthcare facilities are extremely limited uh, because they're not set. You know, they're not prepped for a pandemic. So, you know, in the Bahamas, the numbers weren't outrageous, but. They have so few ICU rooms that they reach capacity right away. So, yeah, it's this ethical thing. Do we close off to, you know, help save a devastating from a devastating situation or do we but also incurring financial and economic ruin, which then has its own host of problems. So it's really an ethical dilemma. But, you know, I think Turks and Caicos reopened in July. Uh, I went to Antigua. I've been following Antigua has not. You know, they've had increasing tourists, um, new flights coming and they have not had a huge spike. I do think if you, you know, if you have mask, a mask policy in the airports and planes, you have a test, you know, within a short time prior to arrival, um, that I think that's a way to, to manage it um, smartly. And I've also been looking at Croatia. Their numbers have remained very low. And that's like, you know, been one of the few places Americans can go. So, you know, like you mentioned, though, the issue is getting a reliable, fast test, um, which can be a challenge in many U.S. cities. Exactly. And in terms of Croatia, I guess the Game of Thrones fans uh, enjoy herd immunity, right? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, you know, you, you mentioned the Caribbean. There's a number of other countries, one in, in particular that kind of took the lead here. And it looked like a little bit of a stunt. But it's amazing to me how many people are now considering it. And that's Barbados, which basically mm -hmm. said, you know, if you're all working remotely anyway, um, and you're not traveling, why don't, you, why don't we just change our immigration policy and give you a one-year visa, come and work here, and you can do all your Zoom calls from Barbados. Uh, Bermuda's now following suit. You even have the former Soviet state of Georgia 
making that offer. I mean, is this a stunt, or is it really think it's going to catch on? I think it's going to catch on. I know so a lot of my employees, you know, our New York City headquarters is closed indefinitely, and people are saying, well, I'm going to be working from home. Why would I want to work in an expensive New York City small apartment in the months of January through April, you know? Uh, so I, I know a lot of people who are thinking about going abroad. Uh, and, but I think it's brilliant because Barbados, you know, the fine print there is I think there's a $3,000 application fee. Uh, to get that visa. So it's a, you know, instant revenue source for a, a nation that's been hit with, you know, fewer tax dollars from tourism. So I think it's a brilliant plan. And plus, you then rely on someone coming for a year instead of just trying to get weekly pa- people coming in every week that could be bringing the virus. So I think it's a, it's a brilliant plan. I actually myself just am a, in the process of buying property in Portugal so I can get one of their golden visas, which will, you know, get me EU residency in about six to eight months and then potentially citizenship, you know, after six years. It's kind of crazy. Most people applying for those programs, you know, Russia and China with stricter passports. But now, you know, looking right now, it's kind of crazy to think I think Americans can only go to 19 out of 193 countries in the world. That's outrageous. I know. And, you know, you mentioned Portugal, that golden visa program has been in place for quite some time. And it's really attractive. Uh, for people who either, A, want to have dual citizenship down the road or to be able to live somewhere without an encumbrance. Exactly. I've, I'm, I'm, I want to have kids in the next couple of years. So in five years or six years to be able to have a Portuguese citizenship, EU citizenship, the right to freely work and live in 26 countries uh, is very attractive. And plus the invest, the 350000 I'm buying it. It's actually a Marriott property. I'm going to earn 3% a year on that. And then they have a buyback plan after seven years. So it's really, if you have some cash and you want flexibility in your life, uh, it's it's something that uh, people should look into. Well, or people can maybe pool resources and figure it out later. I, I, look, I think it's a great idea. It, it's, it's, it's To me, it's a win-win because, yes, it raises revenue for the country, but it allows you options that you otherwise wouldn't have. Exactly. When we come back, one of the things I want to talk about, which is I don't know how many credit cards you have in your wallet. I know how many I have in mine. And every one of them, uh, with maybe the exception of one, I got because it offered me a very distinct and man- and, 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 and measurable perk, uh, especially as a frequent flyer. How do we live and exist with these cards right now when we're not flying? And what are they doing at the card level to keep us members, to give us the kind of perks that makes sense if we're stuck on the ground? So let's talk about that when we come back. And then the other thing I got to talk to you about, which is the frequent flyer programs themselves, you know, I'm seeing uh, capacity and availability. We talked about this a little earlier, but I'm seeing capacity and availability out there that I've never seen before. Um, And especially for November, December, January, and into 2021. And I don't think the airlines have been able to manage it uh, the way they normally like to manage it using their algorithms as to year over year who traveled last year and where they went and how often they flew. And I mean, right now, I think, I don't care what, you know, what kind of computer nerds you have working for you at an airline. I think they're literally flying in uncharted skies when it comes to trying to figure out how you game the frequent flyer programs now in ways that never could be gamed before. So from, you know, from a points guy perspective, I'm sure you're very, very busy these days figuring all that out. I'm sitting here with all these credit cards. Every one of them used to offer me all sorts of great deals, assuming I flew or stayed at hotels or rented a car or made purchases while traveling. How have the credit card companies adjusted to this brave new world and still want to keep me a loyal customer? You know, for especially for those premium credit cards that get you lounge access. Well, oh wait, lounges aren't open anymore. <laughs> um, you know, Amex Platinum and Chase Reserve, they've they've tweaked their their earning and redeeming models. So, you know, in the Sapphire Reserve, which is triple points on travel and dining, they added grocery stores this summer and they also added the ability to get statement credit, basically cash back uh, at a much more lucrative rate than they normally do. Uh, uh, Amex Platinum has added streaming services and cell phones for people, you know, who are staying at home as part of their rebate plan. So there have been tweaks to those programs to to give a little bit of value, you know, and the Sapphire Reserve reduced its annual fee. Um, you know, Marriott cards are now offering 8x on gas is one of the ones offers I got today. So the offers out there are, are wild. You know, the credit card companies really want their travelers to stay engaged. But, you know, this is a time. I mean, especially if you have no plans to travel in the next year to two. 
then you might want to switch to a cashback credit card. Um, you know, there are no annual fee options that can basically get you 2% back on all your spend. You know, if you're up to your nose or ears in, uh, in miles and points and not have no plans to use them, you might want to get cash because, you know, at the end of the day, cash is king. <laughs> it is. But you know, I'm sitting here going, you know, uh, okay, you mentioned the lounges. We got so many emails from, from our listeners saying, you know, they automatically charge me this year for the lounge access. But wait a second, the lounges aren't open. Why should I be paying for it? It's a great point. And you should always call and ask the, the credit card company to either waive the fee, which a lot of them will do, especially if you're a very good customer. And if they won't, then it's time. Instead of canceling a credit card, I recommend downgrade it. So if you've got the United you know, $550 card and you have zero need to go into the lounges or if you don't care about your elite earning because this year they extended everyone's anyway, you, you can downgrade to a no annual fee or a low annual fee card. You keep the credit account open, which is good for your credit. And then you know, down the line, if you want to pay for that access, you can easily re-upgrade, but it's absolutely a time for everyone. Look at what you're spending your money on. Um, and then, you know, if you have a platinum card and you're not getting perks, downgrade it to the Amex Gold, with actually, which actually gives way better earning. You earn on 4X on dining and grocery, which I know I've started to spend a lot more on. So this is a great time to take a look at what your future plans are, but also where you're spending your money and align it with the cards that give you the most bang for every dollar spent. And it could be a cashback card. And that, that pains me to say is the points guy because I'm always like no cash back get the miles but uh, <laughs> but for those who want to travel you know there are un, as you mentioned unprecedented award availability on the most desirable routes in the world all up into the future you know seven seats open on you know JFK to Sao Paulo which Brazil just opened back up so you know and you can make speculative bookings with your miles and points you can cancel for free in almost any program so this is what I recommend airfares are actually still kind of high on some routes you know yeah, I'm going to Europe yeah, I'm going to Europe and it's still $5,000 round trip JFK to London. Virgin Atlantic has seven seats a day on their their two flights, which have their new business class. And it's 57,000 miles one way and about $500. But when you calculate that cash, you know, the value, it's uh, it's way better value to use points. And plus, you can get all your points and taxes back versus if you want to cancel when you buy a ticket, you're probably going to get a, a voucher. Uh, so once again, miles and points offer extreme flexibility and there's incredible availability. And, and by the way, one of the things that you know, pre-existed pandemic and still is there today, which I really resent, is the UK user taxes for anybody flying out of a UK airport. So my advice is, even and, that, and they'll tax you even on a frequent flyer award ticket. So my advice is, if you're going to fly to London, flying to London is not going to cost you the tax. Flying back from London is. So my, my suggestion has always been triangulate it. Fly to London, then take the train, take the Eurostar to Paris, have a wonderful night on Paris, a wonderful dinner, and you don't have to pay the tax that you would have had to pay. You just put it towards the dinner in the hotel and then fly back from Paris. Exactly. Yeah. Flying, for example, flying home from Croatia, it's about $200 in taxes and fees when you connect through London. But if I were to just do London JFK, it's five, $600. And Peter, one other, one other thing I'd recommend to people is the airlines are all offering incredible. So if you don't have any miles or points or credit cards, but you still want to get in points, you can buy miles and almost every major frequent flyer program today is offering 100% bonuses. And what this means, so for example, flying Blue, which is Air France's frequent flyer program and KLM, uh, they are now selling miles for 1.6 cents a piece. So it's 106,000 miles to fly round trip business class and about $500 in fees round trip. But when you do the math, you're buying business class at $2,000 by buying miles wow. uh, versus paying 5,000 to pay for it. So even for well, people who don't have points, yeah. you know, there is an arbitrage game to be played buying there the is. currency, but there you is. just got to make sure there's availability on the dates you want. You got to, and once you buy them, book your ticket because if you know you wait a day or two, that availability can fluctuate by the by the hour actually. So it's a, there's a little bit of risk involved, but huge gains to be had by people who uh, know how to buy miles and redeem at high value. Always a huge gain in talking to you, Brian Kelly, the points guy. My thanks to Brian Kelly, and now boarding Frontier Airlines CEO Barry Biffle with his own update on the state of the airlines, beginning with his own. It's amazing how time flies when you're all bunkered in, uh, but not everybody's bunkered in. In fact, uh, for those of you who are listening to the show last week, you know that I took my very first flight in five months uh, last week when we broadcast the show from Florida, and uh, I couldn't find any great nonstops from either Kennedy or, or LaGuardia, so I went to an alternate airport, which I've always loved, Islip on Long Island, and got a nonstop flight from Islip to Tampa on Frontier Airlines. And uh, 
You know what? Got to the airport, totally empty. They were so empty that even their long-term parking, they left the gates up and said, just park for free. I got in the airport, went to the gate. There are only 50 people booked on a flight that holds about 180, so we're less than a third. They took my temperature. That was Frontier, not the TSA. Got on a brand new, spanking clean A320 that had just been brought back into service. And two hours and 20 minutes later, I was in Tampa. And two days later, did the return flight. So I'm proof positive that I'm not glowing in the dark or frothing at the mouth. And that the numbers I talked about at the beginning of the show, where the TSA screened over 800,000 people last week, are an indication that more and more people are starting, at least, to get back in the air. Joining me now, the CEO of that airline, of Frontier, Barry Biffle. Hello, Mr. Biffle. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So, you know, we're all going through this together. I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing the word together by now. But in the interest of the airline business, it's been a rough ride for everybody, some rougher than others, uh, where they couldn't control certain costs. Um, How have you been able to maintain your schedule? And where do you see it going? Because we're right in the middle of the summer. Well, you know, again, thanks for having us on. Um, It's a tough time for for everybody. The whole travel industry is, is, is suffering now, you know, so, you know, we're only at, we're less than 25% of last year's traffic, uh, on airplanes. And so that means hotels aren't full. It means that restaurants aren't full. It means that people are, you know, a lot of jobs are, are, are at risk because of it. Um, but the good news is Peter, just like you figured out, uh, I think you had a good experience and, you know, the data is coming in that, uh, in our case, we've flown 4 million passengers since, since the uh, CDC started tracking and doing contact tracing. And while we've had people fly on Frontier that had COVID-19, there's no record of them, uh, you know, giving it to anyone else on board. And so uh, we're really proud of our employees and and actually our customers for doing the right thing and wearing masks and everybody doing their part. And and you mentioned the temperature uh, checks, that plus um, actually eliminating, you know, normal food and beverage service kind of, gets rid of the excuses for people to take off their mask and the HEPA air filtration works. So uh, we're, we think it's time to fly and hopefully more people will get the courage to, to do it and get out of their basement. Well, you were one of the first airlines, if I remember, to basically say no mask, no service. Uh, we, 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 I think we might've been by a few hours second to, in, to announce that you had to have it. But I think what we did was unique. We didn't realize it at the time is when we put it, when we put it out, we, we meant it, and um, it wasn't a suggestion. And, and we had a little bit of a, a little bit of pushback the first couple of weeks, and we had to remove some people. Um, but um, I think it's now. I think we're all getting past that. I think everybody understands the science, and and it's really important. And the availability, Peter, you know, of of good masks there is out there. I mean, you can buy them even in stores now, and lots of places online, and good quality masks. So there's really no excuse for people not to have good masks today. And by the way, speaking of masks, be aware of the fact that if you buy a mask that has a ventilator or an exhalation valve, that's not a good idea. You don't, you're not going to be wearing that mask. You've just got to be wearing a regular mask, an, an N95, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so you can you can actually buy N95s now. You can buy KN95s, you know, the Chinese uh, equivalent. Um, but yes, those little those little respirator valves, we've, we've actually stopped allowing those. Um, I don't think a lot of people understood it, but as people are... are doing more and more research. I think we're all becoming at least a, not, not a major, a minor in epidemiology, and we're all figuring out that those little XL vents uh, are not, don't protect other people. Exactly. Now, I've been talking about this on the show for a while. You know the date. I know the date. It's called September 30th or October 1st, when a lot of the provisions of the CARES Act basically expire. Uh, many of your competitors, United American Delta and, and Southwest, have put many of their workers on notice that they could be furloughed. Many of them are taking early outs. A lot of them will be furloughed if nothing else is done. What's happening with Frontier? So, so look, the last, the last thing we want to do is, um, is lay anybody off. And so uh, the, the first thing we're trying to do is get the word out, like I mentioned a while ago, that, that flying is safe and, and there's no real record of people contracting it. And, and I would, you know, secondly, mentioned when you talk about our employees, our employees are about 1.4% of them have contracted COVID-19. The reason why that's important is the national average is approaching 1.6%. So even though we're a customer-facing business and our largest employee group is actually flight attendants, um, interestingly, we're below average. So 
so what that tells you is that 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 flying is safe and the precautions we take are actually you know better than going to a restaurant or you know shopping center or mall or, or grocery store um, so hopefully we can get the word out that it's safe and the more people that travel you know the less the need that, that we'll have to lay people off um, failing that um, there's obviously talk about an extension of the, the CARES Act uh, into into March of next year. And if that were to not happen, um, which unfortunately, given the dialogue in Washington, and I, I read the news just like you, um, it looks like um, it's, they're, they're delaying the decision to September. So unfortunately, people are going to have to make decisions before um, we get there, because normally we bid our crew members up to two months out in terms of the planning process. So, so we'll have to make decisions very soon. But what we're doing right now is we have worked with programs, with, like with our flight attendants, for example, voluntary programs, and we have more than we need uh, to, uh, to actually avoid furloughs for our flight attendants, and, and we're very close with our pilots on, on structuring a similar deal. So I'm really optimistic that, that we can do voluntary programs and not have to, uh, to lay anybody off. I think Southwest has also been successful in that as well. And Delta, I think 17,000 of their employees did take the early out package, which might lessen the blow come October 1st. But still, I think you and I would both agree that October 1st is not a date I'm looking forward to. No, I, I think it's, I think it could be tough. And, and you know, there's a lot of airlines that are, you know, older airlines, like, like you mentioned, like a Delta or airlines that have been around a long time, like Southwest. You know, they have a lot older employees. And, you know, we're a... We're a a newer, younger, growing company, so we just we don't have the, you know, as many people that are as close to retirement or have as many options. So it's a little tougher to make sure. But but so far, um, you know, we think that the the voluntary programs may work. Now, on an average year, you're flying about 15 million passengers. What's it looking like this year? I I hesitate to ask. Well, we're we're getting up into the into the well, I should be in the 20s of millions, but uh, so. On a daily basis, going into this back in March, you know, I I was pushing 80,000 passengers a day. And on a good day now, I'll carry 35 to 40. And so, um, and we're averaging about 30. And and we're doing, and and to be honest, we're doing better than the industry average. Uh, The facts are that if you look across the industry, it's about 25% of what it was. I know. So let's take a look one more time at October 1st, assuming there's no more federal help, at least on that day. We've seen the news about some airlines like American about to drop 30 cities. Uh, A number of airlines have already dropped a number of routes uh, or didn't start routes they had planned to start. What's your strategic plan for your routes? Because unless I'm crazy, I don't think you've dropped a lot. So we haven't dropped a lot. We have a relatively thin schedule to begin with. So so a lot of things that we fly, we may only fly two to two to three days a week. Um, but uh, we have no major changes. I saw the announcement in America. We have no major changes of, of closing 20, 30 cities um, uh, right now. But uh, we are um, obviously going to be looking at where is demand. And, and, and I'm hopeful that, that as Americans that we can do our part to stop the spread because the truth is um, destinations that have high, high concentrations of COVID-19 um, – People don't want to travel there. So that's, that's one of the best things that can happen. <laughs> exactly. Right? And by, the, and by mean, the way, this this isn't a political situation, even though it's been politicized. It's just common sense and intelligence. Wear the mask. We're just talking about, you know, destinations where there's been outbreaks. And you're right. People, you, you, you see where, where a destination opens up and the airlift increases. And then all of a sudden they didn't do the right thing. They opened up too soon. And, uh, you know, you, we can go through about 25 of them right now to see them all basically either shut down or heavily restricted. Uh, what does your crystal ball tell you for the end of this year? Does it tell you anything? Well, it, look, I, I'm optimistic, Peter. I think, you know, we've got destinations. Uh, take Arizona, right? Arizona started really ticking up in, I guess, you know, late May, early June, um, got to a, a pretty tough level. And if you look now, they've, they've, they've gotten it under control. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we could have more um, success like that in Florida, for example. And, and, and I think part of the challenge is if you, depends upon what you read, but you know, the summer was not helpful. They thought the summer would be helpful to many of these destinations, but the truth is in Arizona and Florida, when it got hot, a lot of people were indoors. And I think that, that, that caused some of the spread. 
Um, but as people are enforcing masks and people are getting smart, you know, the numbers are coming down. So I, I'm hopeful that all these destinations figure it out. And, and I think they're figuring it out, too. If you don't control the virus, then you can't control your business. And that's and that's true for a destination, for any hotel, for any airline, anyone in the travel and hospitality business. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about protocols and disinfectant regimes. You know, we know that you're spraying the planes. We know that you're doing that on, you know, during turnaround periods as well. It's not just in the old days, you know, you'd, you'd clean the planes overnight. Now you got to you got to basically do it at every stop. Correct. Yeah. So, so we're cleaning them. Yeah, we're, we're, we're cleaning more than we've ever cleaned. And um, yeah, we, we've got heavy cleanings at night. And we've got, got cleanings between between each flight. So, um, yeah, it's and everything from fogging to flapping down seatbelts, but cleaning the lavatories, for example, like after every flight. Um, and that's just the expectation. Southwest caught, caught, caught a little bit of heat because they stopped cleaning armrests um, as part of their protocol. But you're still doing it. Yeah, we're, we're still we're, we're still cleaning the, the armrests. We're cleaning the seats. We're cleaning. Um, in fact, you know, it, there was an article about this recently. Um, one of the dirtiest places on the plane, you know, obviously the lavatory gets dirty. But uh, one of the dirtiest places is actually the top of the seat. And so... That's why this, the fogging is so important. And, and the reason that it gets so dirty is because everybody, you know, they touch that seat as they're walking down the aisle. And so um, there's, there's, you know, people think about the handles and the seat belts and armrests. Uh, but the truth is there's anywhere people touch uh, is a risk. And we're really not that conscious when you think about it of all the times we're really touching things, even in a given 10 minute period of either boarding or going or, or deplaning, right? Or how many times we've been touching our face. I mean, we, we just never thought about it. Absolutely. And, 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 and one thing to think about too, um, and maybe I've been out traveling a little more than you, um, you know, you're allowed to take 12 ounces of, of hand sanitizer. And, and one of the travel tips I would, I would tell your, your listeners is, you know, you can get these little three ounce. So I, I carry four three ounce bottles little spray bottle yeah. and i just constantly about every you know when i'm in a travel mode on a plane going through the airport just every few minutes i just go ahead and spray my hands again and and, and because <laughs> you, just, you just for that very reason because you forget and then your hands are contaminated and then you fidget with your your mask and now you've contaminated your mask so so um you know you see barry six months six months ago Six months ago, you would have been diagnosed as OCD. Now it's just normal. Exactly. Well, no, I, yeah. Some people look at me like, what? What are you doing? I'm like, hey, they allow, TSA allows the 12 ounces, so use it. And I would say even if you're being OCD, you'll use about six ounces on, you know, hour plus before your flight, even if you check bags. You know, you, you can use about six ounces. But the spray bottles are nice because it, it, it actually makes it go really far. <laughs> Barry, I got to ask you a couple of questions that actually predated the pandemic, but it, it really came to to a heated sort of crescendo because of it. And that is, most people, you know, they make their reservations online. I do it, you do it, a lot of people do it. Uh, but it was almost impossible to complete the transaction without either opting in or opting out of travel insurance. And a lot of people, with the best of intentions, bought it uh, because they wanted peace of mind. Then they found out, you know, sometime in March or April that they weren't covered because. There was an exclusion in the policy for pandemic or COVID-19. I'm hoping that maybe necessity being the mother of invention, that there'll be insurance policies now being written that will deal with that, even maybe at a higher premium, so that people are not going to buy worthless insurance. What do you think? Uh, listen, I think whether it be travel insurance, there's business interruption insurance, and all these different insurance products that I think a lot of us thought a lot of things were covered. And... Um, I think we'll, you know, th these were those things you, you saw in the movies, and now we will we will look for them, and I think yes, we will value them even more, and I think people will pay pay more to have that product, um, but I think the insurance companies are going to be scared of it too, right? I, I think the premiums will reflect uh, the risk, and um, but hopefully we don't have another one of these in our lifetime. Although you know, people are looking for guarantees, right? Businesses don't want to travel their employees without a guarantee. The employees don't want to travel. Uh, there are foreign governments that don't want to see us because of those guarantees. But at least from an insurance perspective, it would be nice to know uh, that, you know, if you have a problem, you can get home. Or if you have a problem, you can get your money back if the, if, if the plane doesn't operate. So I'm with you, Barry. I hope, I hope you come up with that, with that policy. 
until that happens, of course, the other big item up for bids here on The Price is Right is I've been inundated with complaints, not against Frontier, but against airlines in general, about getting refunds. I'm sure this is not a new subject for you, uh, about people who had a flight that canceled, they didn't cancel it, the airline canceled it, and then they couldn't get their money back. Where are you on that these days? So the the Department of Transportation is very clear. If, if, if I cancel a flight, um, then you're entitled to a refund. Um, if you cancel, then it's it's a credit shell. And what we've done is, is recognize that these are these are difficult times for a lot of people. And and I myself, I I have a family member that lives in my household that is that has a compromised immunity um, due to some um, drugs he has to take for arthritis. And so um, I'm very sensitive to a lot of people don't want to travel. Uh, so what we've done is we've actually uh, extended our schedule out all the way to, to the end of next summer, you know, and, and allowed people to change. And we've also even allowed them to convert it to miles, which basically never expires if you're active in our program. Um, so, but, but we recognize that it's, it's, it's a challenge and, and we're trying to be as accommodating as possible. So what you're saying in terms of the voucher, a number of airlines would say, okay, I bought a ticket in November of, of 19 for a flight in April of 20, and the flight was canceled, and they offered me a voucher, but the voucher is only good until November of 20, one year from the time I bought the ticket, not one year from the time I was trying to take the flight. So is that, what you've done is extended the voucher dates? Yeah, so we've allowed you, we've actually extended our schedule, Peter. So we've done something you normally wouldn't even do so we've we've actually put our flight schedule out through next august and we actually had that out there for the last four or five months so that so that people can go ahead and and book book the trip for next summer but not cut it from when yeah i mean in in your example i I give them uh i don't know a year and a half longer so they they, at least at least at least they have more options now yeah 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 i mean i think everybody's trying to give more options um but uh it's it's a tough situation i mean the, the economics of airlines and, and how tickets work and so forth, like airlines don't charge enough to be able to just refund everything if everybody wants to cancel. I mean, the problem is at any given moment, um, I'm already obligated between the aircraft, the, the crew, the, the ground facilities for the next couple of months. So if everybody all of a sudden doesn't want to travel, I get that. But I'm, I, I don't get to tell everybody that I owe money to that, sorry, no one wanted to fly that day. Exactly. You have those fixed costs. And and without sometimes government support, especially in this environment, you don't have many options yourself. And my thanks to Barry Biffle. Recently, I read an eye-opening essay in The Economist that projected some pretty fascinating, some might even say frightening thoughts about the future of air travel. So I invited the author, Charles Reed, to explain. My next guest I've, I've wanted to have on the show for a while because he wrote a piece in The Economist, a magazine that I am a faithful subscriber to. I learned so much from it. But it was a, a prescient piece, if you will, on the future of travel. And, and sort of as, as an introduction to this, think about this. Even the International Association of, of, of Airlines, IATA, International Air Transport Association, is saying they don't even see a real recovery until 2024 of travel returning to pre-pandemic levels. We're looking right now at dozens of airlines that are still grounded around the world, many of which are in financial difficulties that may not allow their return. Uh, Just recently, Virgin Atlantic uh, filed for bankruptcy protection. We see a number of other airlines in the world asking for national bailouts, uh, El Al, KLM, Air France, Alitalia, uh, and many others, Cathay Pacific and Hong Kong. We're seeing airlift at maybe 10% or 15%, especially international travel of where it was a year ago. Uh, we're seeing massive layoffs uh, on the horizon that haven't happened already, already, meaning, you know, at the end of September, when the, uh, when the uh, U.S. CARES Act, the provisions of that act basically expire, which required airlines to keep people on the payroll, we could see as many as 85,000 airline employees, that's pilots, flight attendants, ground staff, customer service agents, all out of work. Uh, and the real question is, anybody listening to the show, are you traveling right now? Are you traveling for business? Probably not, at least not by air. Uh, are you traveling for leisure? Well, based on the behavior of Americans, 
European Union countries will not even let you show up. So where are you going to travel if you could travel? And then when you can travel, will you go back? Crazy stuff. My next guest from The Economist, Charles Reed. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. So as you began to write this piece, uh, I mean, the, the facts are somewhat overwhelming, aren't they? Yes, ex exactly. I mean, the air travel industry has been one which has always bounced back. I mean, it's a pretty cyclical industry um, and it takes a knock whenever there's a recession. But it's always bounced back in the past. And uh, I, I started out quite optimistic when I started to research this piece. But the more and more people I spoke to inside the industry, the more and more research I did, the more and more thinking I did, the more pessimistic I got. Um, this time, something very different is happening to this industry in the past. And this has already been a much deeper dip, but it will also be a much slower recovery than the previous downturns in aviation we've seen since the Second World War. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If we go back and take a look at, you know, right immediately after 9-11 or when the volcano erupted in Iceland in 2010, of course, the economic recession in 2008, 2009, and now now, this seems a little bit different because it's global. It's not regional. Uh, people can't see the future as well as they could see it before. They could see the light at the end of the tunnel before. And then we're dealing with something that we've never seen on this big a scale and it's the worst four-letter word that starts with F, fear. Exactly. And, I mean, even if we compare this to previous pandemics, this um, COVID is much worse. It's having a much worse impact on this industry. I mean, if we look at uh, MERS, which is a, um, in some ways a similar disease to COVID, M Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, um, um, nearly 20 years ago um, in Asia, the, these diseases caused um, caused travel you know, travel numbers to fall for you know six to seven months, and then after that period they would go back to normal on the previous trend. Um, but already we're seeing you know already we are six or seven months past the time that Wuhan went into lockdown, the first place in the world to go into a full lockdown, and um, we're still bouncing along the bottom. Um, in terms of passenger flows in many parts of the world. And in part, that's because COVID is quite a different sort of disease in that this d disease is highly infectious before, before, um, before symptoms appear, i.e. Um, before the telltale signs of, of the disease appear, you can spread it to other people very easily. This is unlike SARS, which showed symptoms very quickly, but it took quite a long time before people with SARS were able to spread it to other people. And so it was quite easy to control with with tools such as temperature checks at airports. The problem with, with COVID is that somebody can have it and somebody can start spreading it. And without very advanced medical technology, such as COVID tests, which um, aren't don't come back immediately, um, it's, there's very it's very difficult to see immediately, initially, who has this disease and who hasn't. And, and this you know is what, Charles, that, that brings up the very interesting point that you just made, and that is it doesn't matter how much testing you have. If you don't get very quick results, it's sort of meaningless, um, given given the, the extent to which we like to travel. Exactly. So, so I mean, some countries want to start doing tests in one hour, 90 minutes, but... So this this disease is um, affecting people in such numbers that the whole testing infrastructure has been overwhelmed. I mean, this is certainly true in the United States, and it's also been true in other parts of the world. And it's also that this system is very fragile. For example, um, when the hurricane um, in the past week hit Florida, um, people weren't necessarily able to get to the test centres to get get a test. Um, some of the test centers, I think, had to limit operations or close down. So, so I mean, the, the existing systems we have aren't particularly working that effectively. And in many countries, you know, particularly in the developing world, there just aren't, aren't enough 
scientists, there aren't, isn't enough testing kits to test all travelers in, in and out of airports. So, um, so more COVID testing, you know, would encourage more confidence back into air travel. But the thing is, is that are there, are there enough resources to do it enough to, um, to, to persuade people to go back? I think that and, will take quite and, a while. And there you go. The word is persuade because everybody wants a guarantee, right? Businesses will not let their executives or employees travel without a guarantee. The executives and the employees don't want to travel without their own guarantee. And then you've got countries around the world that don't want anybody showing up without a guarantee. It's like a triple whammy. Exactly. And um, it's very interesting to look at the insurance industry's um, view on this. So it's still very difficult in many countries to get COVID um, insurance for business travellers. For COVID, it's very difficult to get insurance for leisure travellers for, for, for COVID. And many firms are not going to let um, many of their staff go on trips um, if, if they're scared that they'll get sued, um, if they're, if they're um, employee gets gets COVID or gets stuck in a quarantine or gets stuck in a lockdown. And the dangers of this has become, has become particularly clear in Europe since um, several countries, including Britain, Ireland and Norway, with virtually no notice, insisted that travellers coming back from Spain, which is certainly Britain's most popular foreign holiday destination, with, with, they were given five hours notice and said anyone coming from Spain back to the UK will have to quarantine at home for two weeks. Now, if, if there's no government's not going to give you any guarantees, if insurance companies are not going to give you guarantees, that's it. it travelers are going to have very little confidence that they'll be covered if, if things go wrong. Exactly. And that's that's the triple whammy, because it all compounds to create a situation in which there's no movement and there's no airlift and there's no flow of revenue and there's no economy. I'm talking to Charles Reed, speaking of which, from The Economist, who wrote this amazing story about trying to predict where we're going to be in the next two to three years. And based on what you wrote and based on the facts that we have at hand, it does appear we're not going very far very fast, are we? No, no, we're, we're certainly not. Um, recently, um, IATA said that we won't reach the pre-2020 peak in air travel until at least 2024. And in fact, there are people who are saying it will take much longer than that. Brian Chesky, the normally very optimistic and very bullish chief executive at Airbnb, says that cross-border travel, that's cross-border travel across to other countries rather than domestic travel, cross-border travel might have reached its highest ever level, and we might never reach that peak again. So even optimists in the travel industry are saying, saying <laughs> we might have reached you know, peak, peak travel or peak air travel, um, certainly across cross borders. Um, this is a crisis which might mean we never we, we go to a new normal and we don't exactly. go back to the pandemic situation. Let's talk about the economy itself now, because the economic impact here is beyond staggering. Uh, you take a look at how many airplanes are grounded, how many airlines are grounded, how many airlines have already announced publicly that if they come back, they're coming back at a small fraction of what their size used to be, which means they're going to be flying to fewer destinations. Connectivity is going to be an issue. Airfare certainly has to be an issue. And just the whole travel experience is looks like it's going to be knocked down a few notches. What do you see in that? Well, I mean, we, we can see this quite clearly that airlines across the world are laying off thousands and tens of thousands of workers. Um, there's been a long line of airline bankruptcies, most recently Virgin Atlantic. Uh, but this, this is, this is really just the tip of the iceberg of the economic damage which is going on. The World Travel and Tourism Council, a, um, international industry body. I mean, it keeps increasing its figure of the number of jobs lost, which will be lost from, from, from this industry this year. And, and they think that it, they currently now think it could be up to 200 million jobs in the entire world because say it's that, not. Say, Charles, say that again. How many? Nearly 200 million jobs across the world. If there was ever any need to prove that travel and tourism was the largest service industry in the world, that number that you just gave me does exactly that. 
Exactly, because it's not simply the people who directly work for the airlines. It's there's people who work for hotels. It might be the taxi drivers who drive people to and from the hotels. But remember, there's also an entire industry complex, industrial complex behind this industry. The workers who work at Boeing and Airbus um, putting the planes together. It might be the workers in a factory who wrap all the soap bars for a hotel. Um, it might be the people who make the aluminium which goes into Boeing and Airbus planes. Um, there's a huge number of support jobs behind that we don't normally think about or see um, when we travel away on holiday. And those jobs are under threat as well. Both Airbus and Boeing themselves have announced huge numbers of job losses and and are cutting production by a huge amount. So there is going to be a lot of damage, and a lot of this damage is still yet to come. And, Charles, when you talk about tourism-based economies, you can look at Kenya or Egypt or the state of Hawaii. Uh, these are countries and, and states that are totally dependent. If you look at the GDP numbers, not to mention the Caribbean, on travel and tourism. So if you don't have airlift and you don't have people on the planes that are flying, then nobody's putting any money into the country. And it's, it doesn't take you know, it doesn't take too long a, a, a period of time to figure out that people are literally not being able to put food on their table and feed their family. Exactly. And I mean, the tourism industry has done a very good thing in the world in that it's enabled people from rich countries to spend money in countries which are a lot poorer than them, which has actually done a huge amount to reduce global inequality and reduce poverty in in the developing world in recent decades and without this money money flowing lots of places are going to be in trouble i mean the island of cozumel in mexico produces 70 percent of its gdp from foreign cruise passengers visiting and spending money. The cruise industry is currently entirely shut down, and I'll be surprised if it really gets going in a significant way before the start of next year at least. Um, so that, that's the majority of that island's economy gone, and there are many, many other places which are suffering as much, if not more. And the other thing is that um, governments will and should try to do things to encourage confidence to to, to come back. Yet fear from disease, fear of tourism from disease is not always very rational. I'll, I'll tell you a story about um, Ebola, which um, was a um, disease which broke out in Africa a few years ago. Um, it broke out in northwestern Africa um, and um, it affected that country and a few countries around it, um, but it caused hotel bookings in Botswana. Botswana is 3,000 miles away. It's never had a case recorded of Ebola. Um, it saw hotel bookings half because travellers got scared. It was not they, they thought um, they thought rather than oh it's just Ghana, it's just the countries around that area of northwestern Africa which are affected. It's the entirety of Africa, so we're not going to go on holiday there. And COVID might have that effect. Even countries which do manage to control this control this disease very well, um, even parts of the world which ha which um, had very good systems to manage tourism flows. Um, will still suffer big, big, large amounts of economic damage because of the fear of all travel, the fear of all travel, and um, that a lot of tourists won't, um, yeah. won't differentiate, which is, um, which is very sad in some ways. It is. We're talking with Charles Reed from The Economist. And the last thought from me, Charles, and that is when there's no money coming into the economy and people can't put food on the table and feed their family, this is where governments get destabilized and we see troops in the street. I don't want to get anybody alarmed, but we can make that connectivity here between loss of revenue, loss of ability, frustration and anger. Uh, Charles Reed from The Economist with a somewhat sobering report, but a great read in the magazine. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My thanks to Charles Reed, to Barry Biffle and Brian Kelly for joining me today. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews of the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, or review this Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates.
If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.